The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Hey Juan, how's it going? Good, Jason. How are you? I'm doing well and excited for us to do our first personal case study submission response, which is essentially where a listener submits a scenario that they have been presented with and Juan and I uh, analyze it and respond to it kind of in the same way we talk about the uh, articles and books and theories that we talk about each week. So I guess we'll see how this goes and if our listeners like it uh, and you're not too offended by our uh, academic and professional advice, then <laughs> then we'll do more of them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, to trying this out, Jason. Uh, so uh in that spirit we had a listener reach out to us which is exciting always uh we have an interesting narrative about being a tech writer and about specifically and you know jason you're gonna read us part of his his message uh, about the split motivations that he feels he has and sort of split duty sense of duty that he feels he experiences as he as as he uh fills his position, fills his role in this company uh, as a tech writer. So he was responding specifically to our episode on the role of philosophers in modern firms. For those of, for those of you out there who are listening, who've been listening to our podcast now for a while, if you haven't, you should check that episode out on our, you can get to it through our website as always. And just as a reminder to our listeners, in this episode on philosopher and firms, uh, we discussed what exactly a philosopher might be able to provide a firm in c- the contemporary world. And one of the answers we came up with was that philosophers are trying to break things up into constituent parts uh, to think abstractly and systematically and to develop workable models that can help us act in the world, um, whether ethically, efficiently, or both. Uh, while also this is something that philosophers do is they remain attuned all the while, uh, to meta-theoretical questions in a reflexive manner. And what I mean by that is they're thinking about how do their basic concepts relate to presuppositions about knowledge, about agency, about what it means to be an individual, etc. So they're interdisciplinary thinkers uh, par excellence. Another theme that we discussed was that the philosophical mode of inquiry, because it's wide-ranging in terms of its perspective and goals, will most likely eventually clash with the sort of narrow profit-driven interests that drive firms and the way that they use knowledge. So check that episode out. I think Sepp's response very much um, uh, exemplifies some of these things we were talking about. Jason, tell us about this, you know, what Sepp, uh, was, who, is, who is the person who responded to us, was saying mm-hmm. uh, about his motivations, kind of split motivations. Why don't we, uh, let's read through his submission, which was rather long, actually, but very well written. So thank you, Sepp. His name's Sepp. Um, and we've pared it down while trying to keep the main gist and without cutting too much of Sepp's individual voice. So by the way, Sepp is the producer of a very well-made political philosophy podcast called Good in Theory, and they cover foundational topics such as Socrates and the polis and Spartan society most recently, which is a really great episode. The host, Cliff, of this podcast, he provides a very good analysis of Socrates' apology that actually aligns really nicely, Juan, to our discussion about Socrates as a strategic actor. So that was in episodes four through six. So please go ahead and uh, check out Good in Theory. And okay, let's get into Sepp's response. Wait, we made three episodes on 
Socrates is a strategic actor, Jason? I, I can't believe it, but we did. We're doing just one episode on the subject, don't we? <laughs> That's going to be a recurring issue <laughs> for our listeners. So Anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Take it away. No, you can bow out now if you can't. I'm, I'm <laughs> if stepping you're not out of your way. Interested in hearing us drone on for hours and <laughs> hours. So Sep said, officially, I'm a freelance writer, but I have this entrepreneur, corporate manager after the buyout friend who keeps me on retainer for precisely the reasons you guys mentioned in the latest episodes, referring to philosophers and firms. Um, so for analyzing structures, identifying narratives, coming up with strategies. So I've been thinking about a lot of the things you guys talk about. In this case, the ethical concerns that come with using my mostly angry anti-capitalist reading for corporate ends for a long time. I've just been thinking them to myself because I don't know anyone else who's crossed over from philosophy to business like this. And it's refreshing to see the collision of these worlds happen outside of my head. I don't think anyone studies philosophy to learn a set of skills. You're being trained for a certain purpose, but once removed from their intellectual context, your skills no longer line up with that larger goal. It feels really, really good to use your hard-earned abilities that you forgot you had in a non-academic context uh, because you were always languishing at the bottom of the academic food chain to see them make a difference, to feel needed, and also to make money. However, it's not always a good thing either. You have to actively suppress thoughts about a lot of things you went into philosophy to think about in the first place. A couple weeks ago, I was helping devise a memo to the warehouse workers of, of an online store that is doing ridiculously well in corona times. It wasn't a very nice memo. I kept thinking, can I somehow sneak in a coded message about unionizing? I asked my client, aren't you afraid they'll go on strike? You need them more than ever. To which he answered, no, I don't. You know, many people... You know how many people lost their jobs last month. Uh, so Sepp says he's really not a bad guy and his company is more generous to its employees than most, but he's still management. I may not be Blackwater, talked a lot about on this podcast, but I'm not exactly the A-team either is my point. All right. Well, that's Sepp's submission. Yeah. And as, as you can see from that, he brought up some interesting points that connect directly to what we talked about in Philosophers and Firms. Uh, specifically this this notion that um, firms have a kind of narrow profit-driven interest. Of course, they have to in, in capitalism. They have to compete to survive. Um, and so they, the way they use knowledge is going to be tailored to that, to that, uh, to that need. Uh, but he also talked about how in his experience as a tech writer, he is torn between these motivations that drive him not only to be interested in philosophy, but also... Uh, to be interested in, you know, making a living and uh, to work for a tech firm, right? And he referred us to an article, uh, a review actually of a recent book by Anna, I think it's Wiener, Anna Wiener on her experience working in Silicon Valley, uh, something I actually haven't read the book, but the review was really interesting. It was about basically this liberal arts humanities person that goes and works in uh, Silicon Valley and you know, feels great about it until they start sort of feeling like there's something really wrong with it. Uh, or they start seeing uh, these, the ideology of Silicon Valley sort of, uh, and how detached it is maybe from some for reality, right? Uh, now, Jason, I actually think there is a classic sociological, social theoretical thesis that read against the grain can actually guide us in discussing this issue of split motivations that Seth brings up. And I would, and I would, you know, I, I think it's no, it's what's known as Max Weber's Max Weber being uh, a German sociologist from the early 20th century. Uh, his famous paradox of the Protestant ethic of vocation. Some of you out there might have heard of this, the Protestant ethic, and you might know what that refers to. Maybe you don't. Uh, so, let me give a little background on um, on Max Weber's sociology before talking about this this thesis, this theory that he had. Um, Max Weber was primarily driven by this, by the interest in this question about what it, about the rationalization of society. What is, what constitutes the rationalization of society? Uh, what is, what does it mean for society to be modern? Uh, and this is a question that guided his research. How do we make sense of modern society, uh, characterize that it is, 
that it is composed by a capitalist economy, by an administrative nation state, you know, can this be described actually as rational? Or is it actually not? And Weber argued that modernity was characterized by the increasing control of techniques uh, for weighing uh, the decisions of means applied to desired ends. So a kind of rationalization of action. Mm. And also, on the one hand, so that was one element that he kind of isolated as 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 one form of rationality, a kind of instrumental rationality, um, oriented to to being more scientific about applying means and ends. The other was another form of rationality, which was being more tuned also to why with the values that one that guide one's decision. So also being reflective about values, not just sort of assuming de facto you you know whatever kind of norms have been passed on to you but kind of becoming reflective about values themselves. Now, what worried Weber was the notion that in modernity or in in an increasingly rationalized society, different types of activities like science, law, art, were developing in more refined uh, ways, in more separate realms, given or driven by their specific logics. And that these increasingly became, as they became institutionalized in kind of uh, institutions like, let's say, uh, professional art making or criticism or the scientific scientific institutions or the state or the market, these became increasingly detached from an overarching value system that could kind of anchor them and give people kind of an orientation uh, for their actions. So, Weber also suggests that a system like the market and the administrative state, you know, coalesce into organizations that guide people's actions in a functional, in a kind of system functional rather than a manner, rather than orienting them towards some kind of set of values. Um, And he thinks that these systems create a kind of total context characterized by a loss of meaning and freedom. This is, uh, and I'm, I'll talk about this a little more in a second. This is Weber's famous kind of notion of the iron cage of bureaucracy. Hmm. So I do have a reaction to this. I, I feel like mm-hmm. there's something in here that I do, and I wonder if it's the same thing. I wonder if a lot of people can relate to this. So mm-hmm. it almost seems like Weber is saying that over time, market logic infiltrated culture, values, and all modes of life. And correct me if I'm wrong, but. Does this, I, you know, I wonder if this explains my personal difficulty appreciating any activity or project for its supposed intrinsic value. And let me explain what I mean by that. So as I become more wrapped up in the business mindset, even when I feel I have great appreciation for something in itself, like art, music, creative writing, even science, like you mentioned, I do catch myself instrumentalizing kind of in that utilitarian sense. You know, ah, well, you see, Neil deGrasse Tyson is right to notice the beauty of the cosmos, but he performs this observation in the tradition of furthering the wealth-generating and life-supporting innovations resulting from space exploration and influencing you or us to have more demand for investment in space research. So science can be interesting and beautiful by itself, so why do I go the extra mile and say, well, the only real reason to advance scientific knowledge is to generate tangible, often monetizable results? Then again, Juan, uh, this gets back to our prior conversation on strategic communications and action. You know, I wonder if the tendency to instrumentalize goes deeper than in precedes markets. You know, isn't any goal-oriented action to build a bridge, to bef- befriend someone, to go to the gym, whatever... Aren't all those things backed with strategic intent? You know, I need to do X, Y, and Z to achieve my goal. In lieu of the goal, X, Y, and Z become purposeless. Isn't this form of instrumentalizing relatively basic? That's actually a really good question, Jason, because this brings us to one, you know, to one of the issues or that favor, one of the problems that favor identified or thought he or thought he perceived in modernity. So he actually does talk about uh, the difference between action guided by values, by kind of univ- by maxims which are held to be, um, let's say, unquestionable, right? Uh, whether held together by a religious system, by some kind of other ethical system, and 
the difference between that and a utilitarian way of kind of guiding one's action and what he says whether you know when, i guess we could analyze it in in detail and say what see why he says this what he says is actually utilitarian action uh, can never bind, can never sort of create the universal set of maxims that can bind a society together, a community together. Whereas, uh, in a perhaps you could almost say in a Kantian sense, action oriented by by maxims that one holds to be kind of limits to oneself are um, are the only kind of values values that could actually mold together a, uh, a form of life of interacting people in a community and Allah uh, and in a sense give them an anchoring for uh, for living together so this gets us to mm. so I think what you bring up is really interesting because it's you're sort of saying look I always kind of think about things start thinking about things in a utilitarian sense um, I, or you move things to a utilitarian level Marx is tell, precisely saying oh even though he's actually interestingly enough and this is something we really won't have time to talk about but max favor is actually uh skeptical about the possibility of really grounding any kind of value ethical system he doesn't believe that you can actually do it <laughs> do that uh but he's also worried about what a purely utilitarian society looks like since he doesn't see that it actually can provide any kind of a binding limit that would allow people to, let's say, um, live together and situate and, in a way, stabilize their actions. Uh, And this gets us to the problem of the Protestant, the paradox of the Protestant ethic. And maybe this will clarify things a little bit. Uh, And and given what what we were just going over about uh, Weber's perception that in a sense, modes of rationality, like thinking about uh, how to apply better techniques to artwork, how to apply better techniques to science, how to apply better techniques to actually even also thinking about one's uh, value systems, how these start to separate from each other so that, you know, you're thinking about sciences, like how do I, how do I, you know, how do I uh, apply techniques in order to gain more knowledge, but without connecting that in any way to a kind of why should I do this specific, let's say, is it ethical to do this specific uh, experiment, like whatever, put rats in a cage and, you know, inject them with some drug or something, right, to give you an example. So anyway, the Protestant ethic. For Weber, a key element in understanding sort of modern society was trying to understand why a cultural framework, how a cultural framework could both integrate an ethically guided uh, mode of action and an instrumental mode of action and this does get to what you were saying Jason about this real difference between like uh, communication and strategic how do you get a personality type that is both oriented to kind of universal maxims or ethical maxims and looks at the world and says oh I want to act strategically in it and it's okay for me to act in the market and make money right Ma- Weber, is re- Weber is really interested in how did this you know how how could this have happened in if this, you know, he thinks that this actually happened in Europe culturally, and he's like, how did this happen? Uh, and uh, so he's like, how do you get a cultural system that can be both grounded in a methodical conduct, conduct of life based on, you know, ethics and a strategic instrumental mode of conduct? And what he's, what is important about this thesis is that uh, for Weber, the historical form of the Protestant ethic allowed for the development of a cultural framework in which both action guided by maxims, ethical maxims, and action and oriented to strategic uh, advantage in the market coincided. But only for a moment. That's the paradox. The, you know, the Protestant ethic guided by an emphasis on the devotion to work or to a vocation as a prerequisite for salvation in the other world squared or managed to square for a moment at the according to uh, Weber, the kind of early uh, history of capitalism in Europe, square the religious methodical conduct of life oriented to salvation and the purpose of of instrumental mode of agency that was a precondition for market activity. Let me give you a quick quote uh, from the Protestant ethic in the spirit of capitalism, uh, his famous essay where he kind of lays out this problem of the paradox of of, uh, the Protestant ethic of vocation. And I have some other quotes, but I think we'll 
maybe just focus on this one. He says, quote, The God of Calvinism demanded of his believers not single good works, but a life of good works combined into a unified system. There was no place for the very human Catholic cycle of sin, repentance, atonement, release, followed by renewed sin. Nor was there any balance of merit for a life as a whole which could be adjusted by temporal punishments or the church means of grace. The moral conduct of the average man was thus deprived of its planless and unsystematic character and subjected to a consistent method for conduct as a whole. It is, no, it is no accident that the name of Methodists, quote-unquote, stuck to the participants in the last great revival of Puritan ideas in the 18th century, uh, for only by a fundamental change in the whole meaning of life at every moment and in every action could the effects of grace transforming man from the status naturae to the status gratia be proved. The life of the saint was directed solely towards, trans- towards a transcendental end, salvation, end quote. So, what is Weber trying to say here? Uh, it's this kind of separation of two worlds that are no longer intertwined, the realm of God and the realm of, of this kind of fallen, objectified world, which allow for these Protestant, sort of culturally Protestant uh, individuals to both think of work and their devotion to work as a kind of way of proving themselves worthy of salvation, but also thinking of work as something that is completely, something where they can act completely uh, instrumentally, right? It's okay to make money. It's okay to act and make business. It's okay to to, uh, make deals. It's okay to try to strategize to beat the competition. So this is really fascinating. But what he's saying is that in the long run, what actually happens is that the utilitarian framework of capitalism as it expands and it and in a way butts into more spheres of life undermines um, the kind of ethically guided value system that the protestants used to that these early protestants used to orient themselves so essentially you had a population of individuals who are culturally work oriented for the sake of working well, for, for the sake for of the their sake salvation. Of, for the sake of, yes, for the sake of showing that they bore the grace. It wasn't necessarily, you know, being good at a vocation didn't necessarily mean that you were like meant to go to heaven, but it was meant to be a sign that you were s- somehow, by being methodical in every moment of your life, that you were disposed, you were disposed of God's grace, that you, in a sense, were proving yourself in this world uh, as worthy of salvation, of being sent to the next. So that's a you know, it's a really interesting thesis, aside from whether it's <laughs> empirically correct, right? So so just so I'm clear, though, are they saying that <clears throat> over time, God kind of fades away from the equation or becomes more nominal in the equation and profit or capital logic takes over? In a sense. So if we think about it historically, what he's saying is in the early history of capitalism in Europe, think about, let's say, the golden age of uh of uh, Dutch sort of uh, capitalism in the 16th uh, 16th century, right? In the early age, this kind of Cal- uh, Protestant orientation, this Protestant mindset is both culturally a kind of kickstarter for capitalism in that suddenly it becomes okay, uh, according to Weber's thesis, to make money, but also be, you know, oriented towards salvation. In the long run, by the time capitalism becomes more institutionalized and its mode of calculation, of its mode of ori- orienting activity and, and agency becomes more uh, more sort of spread throughout society, that it under this undermines any kind of orientation of life through uh, universal maxims rather than let's say uh, purely strategic maxims oriented to profit. Uh, Again, setting aside whether this is empirically correct as a thesis, which it's a classic sociological thesis, the kind of thing if you went to study sociology, you might learn in the first year or whatever. It's a really fascinating thesis that talks about the way capitalism or highlights for us the way capitalism as as a system, right, is oriented towards a certain set of, um, of techniques, uh, means and ends and modes of rationality, which don't necessarily always coincide or 
are in congru- con- congruence with, let's say, ethically guided action, right? You know, I wonder if action or salvation-oriented action is just another flavor of capital-oriented um, action, or both can be instrumental in the same way, even if the goals are different, right? I think Weber would. I th- I think Weber would fundamentally disagree. Uh, but we could. I think we could discuss that. So again, this this gets to this distinction that Weber is making between uh, ethically guided action and utilitarian action. I think uh, Weber would say there's. We could point out some reasons why one is very different than the other. Um, one is oriented utilitarian as you know maximizing let's say uh the minimization of pain or the maximization of pleasure or the uh or utility of things whether whereas a value guided action is uh, or an orientation to some kind of set of maxims which which orient action in a value thick way so we value this specific uh day of rest we value this you know not eating this particularly th- particular thing we value um living you know being married or whatever right uh, this is these are in a sense utilitarianism open it's is it's more narrow uh whereas value guided system has certain entails certain obligations that utilitarianism might not and also certain kind of relations with other people uh, that utilitarianism might not. And again, Weber, whether we agree with him or not, does not think that utilitarian, uh, utilitarianism as a, as a normative framework can actually really bind societies together. I'm just recalling my philosophy 101, where we <laughs> discuss divine command theory, mm. <clears throat> where you have morality as dictated by a fear of what's going to happen to you in the afterlife, mm. which I can think of five or six individuals off the top of my head who would also <laughs> name that ridiculously unethical. Mm. And also very naive because I think uh, Christ- I mean not not to kind of you know, pick sides, but I think any kind of very sophisticated theology understands that uh, a kind of orientation to doing what is commanded of you ethically for once simply for one's personal salvation uh, rather than because it's what's commanded of you is uh, is kind of a cheap version of Christianity <laughs> or any religion. So this you know. I won't go into theology. I'm not really an expert in it, but I think my sense is a lot of <laughs> experts would say, hey, uh, that's actually a cheap version of understanding uh, salvation. Salvation is actually harder to, to get than that. <laughs> you well, have maybe to kind I'm of just be, showing or, my bias here. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, that I think that highlights precise, that helps us, gives us some language maybe to think about what Sep, this kind of response that Set had, right? Uh, how is it that in our modern complex world, our actions, our orientations, our activities are torn by these different spheres of activity, right? And which call for us to do different things, whether it's uh, value learning for its sake or va- or make sure that we're helping the firm be competitive. And so I was thinking, Jason, what do you think are the cultural frameworks that it guide that in a sense form our motivational basis here in the present? And for people in our generation, and particularly as these relate to work, to vocations, are we primarily guided by an ethical system? Are we guided simply by utilitarian values, by the interest of Mickey Bunny? What do you think? Well, certainly we're guided by divine command. <laughs> Glad to hear that. You are, my friend. <laughs> Maybe. I'm sure I'm religious in, in ways that I'd hate to admit. <laughs> So, as we've discussed previously, um, I think there's good or at least ample research suggesting that the strongest motivator performance, at least in the modern work setting, is reliably money. Um, Some studies suggest that it's only the prospect of a wage increase that actually increases performance, and once the wage increase is realized, performance levels out or wanes. Um, one very outdated, but probably one of the most frequently cited studies in MBA classrooms was conducted by Gary P. Latham and Edwin A. Locke in 1979. So these two, uh, researchers, they tested and ultimately recommended a strategy called goal setting 
they essentially wanted to find a way to maximize performance without additional monetary incentives. And they found that simply by setting a specific goal that was difficult but attainable, coupled with supervision, performance feedback, and recognition for successful workers, performance could be significantly increased. And they actually tested this strategy at a logging company who apparently saved $250,000 over a nine-month period simply by applying this management approach. And that's a pretty good amount of money for the time. So why is this the case? Uh, Ego, sense of belonging, pride, feeling like you've contributed something larger than yourself or to the betterment of others. Um, Interestingly, the researchers found that while goal setting seems to work without additional monetary incentives, um, if workers did not perceive their current compensation to be competitive or fair, the strategy failed to increase performance. So this leads me to believe that in any modern economy, financial compensation will always be one of the most important performance incentives, and that perhaps we should consider using the promise of massive financial reward to motivate and mobilize action where society needs action most. Okay, so that's my kind of analytical perspective on on that question, but I also wanted to take a more personal angle here, given SEP's relatable experience uh, in the world of, of, uh, or working in the world of big tech. So, you know, as you knew, Juan, this is kind of how we became buddies. We always wanted, I always wanted to study philosophy, um, but all kind of all the incentives really (laughs) starting with wanting my family to not feel that I was a failed investment seemed slanted toward me having to design a career that was easily monetizable or maybe not easily, but more easily monetizable. Um, and that includes my lifestyle and the kind of life I hope to provide for my family in the future. So as you know, I ended up in proposal work for a while. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, essentially you, every day you wake up, you read a request for a proposal issued by a company or a, gov- a government, state government, federal government, foreign government, and they're asking for something. Um, you know, they, they have a need, and usually an intern has written it, so you have to read <laughs> read between the lines and figure out what exactly is it that they're looking for, and how do I kind of frame my past performance and price this competitively so I'm going to come out on top and we're going to win the contract. Um, and, you know, for, for me personally, nothing against uh, some absolutely amazing people and exceptional proposal proposal writers I know. Um, over time, you know, I just couldn't really justify this work. It's it's essentially a sales role, and we were selling construction services at, at the company where we worked, one to government, foreign government, commercial, every day kind of pumping out variations of standard language priced just right to win new work, but we never actually got to see these projects come to fruition. You know, the the job is totally abstracted away from reality. Uh, Even if those contracts we won did something or did sometimes generate some kind of positive change, you know, we never really experienced it for ourselves. Uh, It just felt very perpetual and redundant for me personally. So, albeit I was able to translate my communications background nicely to the proposal writing job role. And even actually during my job interview, I talked about Aristotle and narrative framing. (laughs) Uh, And uh, according to my interviewers, it helped me get the job. So thank you to Aristotle for that. I'm Um, surprised that helped. (laughs) Also, you make uh, it sound so appealing. (laughs) The whole job. Well, I'm, I'm still speaking like a salesperson, I guess. Um, now, of course, this is where you and I met, Juan, and a beautiful relationship blossomed until you abandoned and left me to drown on a project so you could teach in South Korea once. And mm-hmm. then, of course, you came back. For much um, less money. <laughs> was that? For a lot less money. Oh, I was really pissed. Uh, Sorry. It's okay. I forgive you. So, yeah, proposal writing in the previous context was just too redundant. It was too absurd. And after a few years, there just wasn't much that interested me about it. So I decided to go back to school. Um, I was still faced with this challenge of, do I follow my heart and study communication theory? Or do I stick to the path of trying to maximize profit without totally abandoning my core interests? 
and I found what I believe to be the best possible alternative to the former, which was to get some relatively generalizable advanced degrees specializing in strategic communications and change management, two practices that do at times pull heavily from the humanities and are easily intellectualized, as you've seen on our podcast. So I guess there's kind of a dichotomy I've, I've experienced here. I've been in this consulting trade now for about two years, and overall, as much as I notice the ironies of our industry, it's treated me very well. Uh, and I say that as someone who I guess you could argue has been shaped by neoliberalism. Maybe this is an overused catch-all phrase these days, but since I was a child, I, I was acculturated into this kind of frame of mind. I wasn't you know, very good in school when I was younger, but I was given all the opportunity in the world and eventually learned that if I worked hard and created results and stood out from my competition, that I could reap really big rewards. And this is a key element of meritocracy, kind of in the way that Daniel Markovitz defines it in his book, The Meritocracy Trap, that came out recently. So I look back on my journey and I want to say, well, duh, I guess it's no big surprise that I ended up a consultant. Um, the economy is kind of structured for people like me to go into these types of job roles, um, as opposed to others who didn't have the financial resources and support to play the game. And that causes me more discomfort than anything. I don't know if mm. Sepp shared the same discomfort. I don't know if this is exactly analogous to his experience, but, you know, I believe that I've done a lot of good things over the past few years for my clients. Uh, and, you know, I work in the public sector, so I do more than help clients maximize the bottom line or I help them maximize different kinds of bottom lines uh, beyond profit. But in the grand scheme of things, I'm working sometimes 70 plus hours a week thinking through and solutioning highly local challenges that don't always translate to tangible, positive social change. And what we need today more than ever, arguably, is massive investment in urgent public challenges like climate change, like pandemic preparedness and response, like antibiotic-resistant bacteria, financial inequality and poverty. So, you know, I'm not saying people aren't greedy and cruel, but one way or another, the vast majority of people participate in this system, even the knowing and unknowing victims of it. And Sepp said, speaking about his manager, he said, he's really not a bad guy and his company is more generous to its employees than most, but he's still management. I may not be Blackwater, but I'm not exactly the A-team either, is my point. Um, so you might see it as naivete or bias. Uh, if we take a step back for one second, just to see people as people, by and large, managers and executives, they just want to be successful. They have, of course, unending... Uh, indefinitely enlarged personal goals. They want to be recognized for their tenacity and industriousness, to be financially rewarded and to have nice things, some for vanity and some, ideally most, to provide the best life possible for their loved ones. Based on Markovitz's research, um, they work exceptionally hard to a fault, sometimes to a point where they forget to take care of themselves, physical and mental health, and they get paid better than most. And at the very top, they hoard the vast majority but not without feeling that they've earned it. So many others don't have the opportunity, the necessary training, credentials, capital, and family support to compete in this arena. And on the back end, all of this energy is generally focused on building more profit, expanding capital for the few. So imagine if we could change the incentives. Imagine if we create more opportunity for other potential high performers while refocusing all this energy on urgent public challenges. If I could do what I do now, but with the goal to reduce a community's carbon emissions by 90%, I mean, that's kind of the dream, right? Even today, without any radical reforms, if the government paid for such a service, um, you know, it would get it, it would get done. Companies like McKinsey take a lot of flack for doing really questionable client work. I mean, if you just change the incentives, create new financially valuable markets, the same companies will be fighting to the death to do that kind of work. Of course, it's not so simple, and it gets into monetary theory and market theory, and we're going to address some of this in a future episode. But, you know, I wonder, can, I mean, can you really decouple massive financial incentive from massive social or from massive action and mobilization on important social challenges? 
Uh, maybe not completely. You know, I think that's a good point. I think, however, a couple of things that I would respond to that is, you know, this is, um, you talk about changing the incentives and, you know, these companies will be fighting to do this kind of work. But there is also, we have to remember that in our societies, in politically contentious societies with, where people have different interests, there is there are vested interests which, uh, which see, for instance, the switchover from, let's say, uh, from carbon and oil to green as less money in the long run. Of course. Uh, and there are, I think, political issues about how do you what kind of mechanisms do you put in place so that even if you even if you structure uh economic production around markets that there is a more equitable distribution of let's say wealth uh or capital and so i don't think you can decouple that from politics at the end of the day and from thinking about reform of the structures through which these things take place. But that, you know, that brings me to two other things that I think you brought up that were interested, Jason, which have to do with, you know, what is it that motivates people? Uh, you talked about, you know, how in a sense, one, that you feel acculturated in this, into this kind of neoliberal framework. And I think we all have been, you know. Uh, I don't think neoliberal is a catch-all term. I actually think it's a very specific concept that, describe something very concrete, a set of policies, market policy, a sort of government policies oriented towards liberalization, uh, opening of, you know, uh, a certain set of trade, free trade uh, discussion or regime, uh, financialization, so f- putting down and throwing down the, uh, the divisions between uh, finance and production has been a key element of uh, neoliberalism. Getting rid of things like the uh, 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 some of the divisions between again finance and production that were put up during the New Deal, which were saying, "Hey, one thing is like betting on the, the stock market; the other thing is the, the role of the bank as something that funds businesses with you know good loans that the businesses can repay over time." Uh, we saw how this had worked into the 2008 crisis when bankers with both giving mortgages and betting on mortgages. So, you know, neoliberalism, I think, points to some very specific things. But you talked about how it for us, I think for us who have been grown up under the in the age of the epoch of neoliberalism, which, uh, again, is both an ideology and a set of policies, uh, this thinking around meritocracy and this thinking about, you know, being motivated to have uh, through financial incentives as the incentives to which we respond. Again, I think those things are very specific to our historical moment. Let me give you an an insight of what I mean. Uh, A sociologist, Norbert Elias, who who wrote a book called The Civilizing Process, he uh, he asked this question. He said, why submit uh, oneself... Uh, to work if one didn't have to. You know, he says, we scarcely realize today what a unique and astonishing phenomenon a working upper class is. He's talking about the switch from feudalism to capitalism, and he's saying, you know, under feudalism, the upper class didn't work. (laughs) You know, lords and, and dukes, they didn't work. They sat around, you know, they went to war, they went hunting, they ate a lot, um... And they, you know, they did all the kinds of activities, but they did not work. This is a very unique situation. Uh, so it, I think it's we can't detach we can't detach these motivations from their historical conditions. And I think if we think of people as just like motivated by incentives, fight monetary, we forget that the, that at many points in history people were not uh, uh, motivated by financial incentives. That doesn't mean that. Uh, Markets might not be good ways to organize incentives and the distribution of goods and services, but we also have to keep that into a historical perspective. So uh, two things I think I would bring up. One, again, neoliberalism emphasizes this notion of individualism as a sort of individual uh, action as the only kind of way of uh, of organizing, again, coordinating activity in uh, in any collectivity. They... Uh, neoliberal thinkers, whether it's uh, derived from the kind of 
thinking of economists like Milton Friedman believe that any kind of uh, action not oriented and by or not guided by kind of individual uh, egotistic activity is bound to get in the way of efficient markets. They also believe that the state can only get in the way of efficient markets, so it should basically do nothing but support uh, markets which always tend towards uh, towards stability and towards equilibrium. These are kind of again, these are kind of uh, presuppositions or propositions about reality through again an economic framework which are questionable. So. You know, I think it's important to think about the way that neoliberalism, which is, again, the reigning framework for thinking about economic policy and the reigning ideological framework that tells us about how people act and why they act in the world after, you know, which has been really the reigning framework for 40 years since the breakdown of Bretton Woods, since the end of the post-war period in which Keynesianism was the reigning kind of economic framework. Uh uh, we, that's important to keep into mind and in understanding. Uh, you said something I think that was really interesting, Jason, earlier, which was um, the economy is structured for people like me to go into these type of jobs. And I think that's really fascinating because when I talk to people about what they want to do or young people, what they, what they want to do when they grow up, I'm always struck by that people feel like they don't have any choices. They need to go into business. Or they can go lose, you know, they can do something really idealistic and stupid, like go into the humanities. Or they need to be like learn coding so they can go into tech. So the structure, the policy and the industrial policies and the, the kind of market policies that we have followed for 40 years are such that, as you said, the in the U.S., there is, for high-paying jobs, we could talk about service-oriented jobs, which are many times oriented towards maximizing efficiencies, whether it's for, for private entities um, linked linked to their interest to maximizing profit or for public entities basically looking for a way to save a buck because they've been gutted over 40 years in terms of public funding so i think this is a this is a problem in terms of the the range of activities that we can actually that people actually have to be able to to train themselves to go into and to do any kind of make any kind of difference when there is no other outlets there are no other outlets um again and in a in a capitalist society where you need money to survive, of course you're going to be motivated, right, to to be able to secure a livelihood through a salary. Right. Those are a couple of things which I think are interesting to discuss. You know, I think they link up with what we talked about in other episodes about uh, 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 about automation and and system. You know, the capitalist global system overcapacity uh, uh, since about the 1970s. And the way that neoliberalism, in a way, was a response to this situation uh, of a kind of stagnant Keynesianism that couldn't seem to find solutions for for stagnant markets. Now, whether whether neoliberalism was actually a solution or just kind of a a kind of a bandage that allowed for uh, profits to continue to flow in to a certain group of people, but never really solved the, the underlying problem of actual stagnant economic growth and lack of growth in manufacturing is another question but i think this is this systemic perspective is one that we need to keep in mind if we're talking about what it is how it is that we've been again thinking of ideology uh socialize socialize this individuals and how we think about what motivates us and what ends that we're interested in um accomplishing as not only as individuals but as citizens or as whatever else right uh if we don't have venues for people to coordinate their activities or actions in order to produce goods that are public goods generalizable goods uh, we only organize society to have venues where people can uh, follow individual egotistic interests to supposedly out of the interplay of uh out of those egotistical interests come up with the maximally efficient result what are we missing what are we not what are we incapable of solving i think you brought up climate change and have something i'll harp on over and over and over again as you know but i do not think that markets are equipped by their own tools uh, they they might be able to be pushed in the direction or for or framed in the direction to solve some of these problems but by their own tools i don't think they have the wherewithal to be able to tackle these 
big issues. They, there's a need for po politics and policy and a set of values that are t articulated by a, uh, by a citizenry that, that decides that this is what they want to do. Again, this gets to values versus such utilitarianism that it's better, let's say, to have a, cle a clean ecosystem uh, to pass on to the next generation and let's say to maximize profit and GDP. Uh, whether those things can be whether you can have one and the whether you need whether you have to give up one to get the other, I don't. I think it's an open question, but um, but it's one that people should be talking about, right? And should be making a decision about based on values that they uh, argue are better than, let's say, oh well, you know, we should just maximize profit to help with everything else. Uh, this yeah. I think is important to keep in mind, right? When we talk about motivations and the split of motivations that we are facing. Or the crisis, I think, in our own moment between, hey, we want to solve these big issues, we're worried about them, we see them coming, but I need to be, you know, I need to find a way to make money and I need to find a way to kind of put my skills into work. I don't know. Do you think to start, you know, to really have an economy that is structured to solve, you know, these pressing public challenges like climate change, like antibiotic resistant bacteria, those kinds of things, um, from your perspective, your sense of it, would it require some kind of cultural transformation, or I think you would call it based on a previous conversation, cultural revolution to decouple tenacious motivation from massive financial reward? I mean, can we get people to work hard? I mean, well, is it a good idea to slow everyone down a bit? Or can it be a good thing to have a bunch of people grinding at the desk every day until they die? <laughs> I... You know, you the way you're framing this question, I think, is interesting because I don't, you know, I don't think that you can have a cultural revolution. I don't think you can push values from above, and you know, uh, perhaps, but that maybe is the wrong way to think about it. Uh, culture is always going to be changing, and people's perceptions are going to be changing. Perhaps what I don't know what we need, Jason. I'm not really sure. I do think that with cultural transformations um opportunities arise for new new arguments to be made that hopefully are uh based in a wide vision of history and of common interests that people might have uh in order to rethink how we can update in a sense our institutions right in order to again f build upon the kind of traditions that we have uh, that emphasize things like division of powers, um, uh, respect for certain rights, uh, respect for autonomy, but also creating new venues for people to come together and solve problems. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily, again, we talked about this over and over, and I think it, there's a need to be more concrete, but it, that doesn't necessarily, to me, I don't think that necessarily means getting rid of markets. Now, this is something I think about all the time as someone who comes, looks at things from a critical perspective and has very much been weaned in critical theory, which is, can we actually like have a better world with, with markets? I don't know if the answer is necessarily no. I'm also not sure that I'd also, but I'm also pretty sure that markets as they exist today and the way that they're connected to, let's say, policy making, the way that they've the way that they've uh, taken our politics, in a sense, um, hostage, right? I don't think this is a. I don't think this is conducive to kind of creating sustainable societies or equitable societies or just societies. And I, I think there's a need for people to to work hard to reform these. I don't know if there's a need for, let's say, a cultural revolution. There's no way to kind of like impose. A cultural shift by force it's something that would have to happen gradually through changes in education policy changes in the way you structure markets and the way you motivate people changes in again all kinds of different things that uh, that are always happening but that we would need to retweak and rethink right what do you think jason well i almost think there's something romantic and noble about the person who sits at their desk from six in the morning to 12 o'clock at night and and lives essentially <laughs> a life with meaning predicated on the laptop i've i've worked with people like this and their output is just amazing 
but the cost it has to their relationships and their families is also insane. Yeah. You know, I'm being a little facetious here with my initial framing, but it's hard to understand how someone gets so dedicated to the perfection of a craft where probably I don't know if the financial reward promises to be that much higher. Unless, I mean, maybe unless they get, they're trying to get partnered and there's like no likelihood of a massive uh, pay bump at the end of it to get back to our original conversation about compensation. I don't know how you could replace that. Um, I think it's good to have that kind of tenacity and industriousness because when you have people who are fully engaged and laser focused on solving a problem you're going to get it done fast and effectively that's my assumption at least so if we're trying to decouple that kind of work ethic from uh, a meritocratic economy that increasingly pushes wealth to the smallest amount of people at the top um, what's the replacement? What's the alternative? How do you level the playing field while maintaining a population of individuals who are willing to grind and solve problems? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I think I, I get the sense of, well, I get the sense that you're making the assumption that markets have been the only mechanisms that have ever motivated that kind of activity. No, I'm not. When I'm I, not. But I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, in the future, what does that look like? Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And see, I, maybe in general as a way of setting up frameworks speaking, for motivation. Speaking of good in theory, you know, Sep's podcast—they just did a fantastic episode on Sparta, mm-hmm. and right. the way that society was structured, everyone was laser focused on being the most ruthless <laughs> and most educated and right. most beautiful fighter. That was that was everything, and the entire economy was based on on that kind of orientation the war economy yeah right. yeah and the way that cliff describes it actually in that episode if you can go ahead and listen to it <clears throat> is that it actually has everything to do with sparta's unique um, system of slavery and that they had a war against the slaves constantly and how this kind of motivated um a highly focused warring culture hmm. uh, and ultimately uh, helped them maintain their yeah. Um, superiority over other Greek militia, but that just that just highlights how central I think the question of how one spends one time between let's say meeting needs or developing interests is, and how um, there's always in most societies there's always been this question of well who does the boring work and who gets to do something else. Uh, again, this goes back to to this kind of thing that Elias was bringing up. Which is oh, it's you know, people people don't really realize how novel it is in human history that an upper class would actually be a working upper class, as in capitalism, uh, whereas in most other societies, work upper classes were not. They were leisure, or they were oriented to a kind of religious, uh, sacramental, uh, artistic, uh, other kind of activities. Uh, and, you know, this makes me think of all kinds of people who, historical figures, right? I could name a bunch off the top of my head. Primarily, let's say, artists like Michelangelo, uh, um, right? Musicians and all. Uh, but even but even kind of scientists and other figures uh, or even policymakers or philosophers like who were not primarily more who who would spend you know all day every day doing the perfecting specific skills uh artisans and so forth but were not motivated by any kind of sense of financial gain as primarily but were oriented by a, some other kind of sense of worth right so i think what you bring up is something interesting what which is in the future, if we think about what kind of frameworks we need to set up to or to to max or to orient agency, action, and motivation, one thing we have to take into effect is not only how can you get them to you know not only is mon- does money get them more excited to do the you know what we need them to do, but what other things give people uh, what other activities give them worth, and how do we set that up in a sense that there's a kind of social uh, that 
let's say we always talking about teachers, teachers, right? Teachers are early paid and this and that. Well, why is that? Why is that the case, right? Why is that the case in our societies, and why aren't uh, teachers held in more esteem, respect, and maybe paid more? Whereas, and this might sound controversial, perhaps in this country, but you know, I'm always uh, fascinated that you know, let's say you go to take a flight, you know, who boards first? People in the military, right? Uh, but teachers are never like treated in the same way, even though they're also public servants. Um, and people, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be, be mad, <laughs> probably mad about that. Well, but there's a difference. But you know, they're also public servants, and they do they 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 carry out a very important function. They might not be out like putting their lives in danger, but they're out. Uh, they're they're educating young people. Um, so that to me is is a brings up. And again, if you, that's an excellent example, people who go into the military are not primarily oriented by financial gain. Uh, and some of them are the best at what they do, right? You know, there so are, I think there there's a lot of people of, who join the military of, because they don't have any other financial future. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And yet, there's I think there's still a certain group of people who are oriented towards a sense of kind of service and whatever, right? So um, I think there's other motivators out there. There's and we need to keep thinking about how does that one can tap into those. Um, because otherwise, then we get a very selectively narrow set of activities that the market cares about, which are what people will spend their time refining, um, which maybe gets us back to favor. How is it that different realms of activity, artistic, scientific, um, strategic, market-based, what is it that motivates certain people to do that? Now, again, his answer was in Protestantism, one was very much oriented to do well in work because it was supposed to be a sign that one was uh one was ready for um for salvation and that's a that's really unique because what he's saying is before that whether it's true or not before that it was really hard to get people to sort of spend all their day working on a trade when they didn't need to right um and you know, Elias actually, I think, also talks about how the number of working days between, let's say, the 16th century and the 18th century or something around that time. I'm getting it wrong, but I can go back and look it up and maybe we can post it on Twitter or something as a correction. The number of working days went up from like 250 a year to 300 a year. So the amount of time people work, even poor people, has changed very much over time. Uh, and I think it brings us a paradox. We can produce more things than ever before. We have more material goods, and yet we work more than ever before. Um, something I think maybe to reflect on as we as we wrap this up, right? <clears throat> you know, I was thinking as you were talking. I think corporate lawyers should be the ones to board the plane first. <laughs> what? Really? Tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm just being Is anybody silly out there trying to corporate? wrap up. Sep, I don't know if we answered your uh, questions, uh, but hopefully this was a fun response. We did to not answer Sep's questions. <laughs> <laughs> we just confused things more as usual. Uh, anything else you want to say about nope. this one? Any any corporate lawyers out there? Please board before people with small children um, for our next podcast episode <laughs> well we are we we did uh, an episode on uh, markets non-markets and new markets and i think this conversation kind of feeds into that one in some really cool ways so mm -hmm. that'll post after uh, we finish up our radicalization series and cool so you can look forward to that and um, not look forward yeah to i mean it. I, I had fun with this one so i think you know, I'm looking forward to doing more of these. Yeah, me too. And um, so for our listeners, you can submit your personal case study through our website at www.panopticpod.com or through email, which is panopticpod at gmail.com. Uh, just for your awareness, we introduced tiers on our Patreon providing uh, some exciting perks to listeners who are able to throw in a few dollars our way to support panoptic content creation. So especially our corporate lawyer uh, listeners, please throw <laughs> us a few dollars. That'd be much appreciated. And 
of course, uh, we're, we're glad to have uh, all of you here with us, listening and engaging with us through social media um, and through the website. Uh, and the extra support is much appreciated. So patron, uh, patrons who pitch in a few dollars, uh, you guys um, and girls and whoever you are will get uh, priority when it comes to our personal case study submission responses. But we're going to get to all of them eventually. So uh, as you can see, you know, we really take the time to read through your submissions and try to understand your unique situations. Uh, and this does take time. So bear with us. But uh, we, you know, we look forward to responding to all of your submissions. Yeah. And, and I would be I would like to point out, Jason, that we you can also contact us through Twitter. Uh, our handle is at Panoptic Pod. Um, so if you don't follow us on Twitter already, please do. We're getting more active on it. And, uh, that's another way you can contact us if you want to just tweet at us or send a personal, uh, a message through Twitter. Um, if you want interested in getting some kind of response to a situation just like, uh, we did today. Definitely. All right. I think that covers it. All right. All right. Jason. Thanks everyone. Pleasure as always. Yep. Thanks. And thank you, Juan, for a, um, an energetic conversation and debate, I think. Always. Always yeah. energetic, if not very insightful. <laughs> Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.